0: things theology, all things theology. We chop it up properly without an apology. Gotta get thexology to God hollow because this is how we do it at all things theology. Well, Grace and Peace, Grace and Peace, guys. Welcome back to another episode of All Things Theology, where I'm your host, K Dub, and today we're gonna to talk about arguably one of the most biblical doctrines. That I believe in that you should believe in that the Bible teaches but before we get into that make sure you like this video subscribe to the channel and as always click the notification bell so you can be aware of when we drop good content so like I said we're going to be talking about the Trinity I have a special guest no stranger to the to the uh, podcast but before we get into that a word from our sponsor this episode is brought to you by Trisha Ramos real estate is a move in your near future did you know Trisha Ramos is a local realtor in DFW and can actually help you in all 50 states across America? Maybe you have heard of her or Fish with Trish segments on the way of the master radio with Ray Comfort and Wretched Radio. As she fished for souls, now she is listing and fishing. Contract today if you like to list your home and have her help you fish for a new one. Message her today for help at List and com. contact information is in the description if you'd like to hear more now let's continue our, our show today so yes we will be discussing the doctrine of the trinity let me bring on my guests no stranger to the show no stranger man we've i was uh looking on his channel today and i was like <laughs> remember we debated some old crazy arminians back in the day and <laughs> my buddy my friend rick caldwell how you doing man
1: doing well brother yourself
0: doing good man so i know we've been talking for some time and of after addressing some some heretics that shall not be named as of now we we uh we we started to come to the same conclusion that even a lot of people who believe or confess the doctrine of the trinity are confused about the doctrine of the trinity when i when i did my little video of uh he that shall not be named uh responding to his video about the Doctrine of God. A lot of people in the comment section were like, "I would love for you to do a video on the doctrine of the Trinity." There, there, there was some still some confusion, right? And so, I I hit you up and say, "Hey, man, would you like to join me?" And you were very eager to do, which I was glad. And so, um, yeah, man, uh, let, let's 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 start off with this. So before we get into the information, why why is the doctrine of the Trinity important, and why why should we? Why should we have some, some grasp of the Doctrine of the Trinity?
1: That's a very good question to start with, uh, Brother Chris. The Doctrine of the Trinity is the very foundation of the Christian faith. Without an affirmation of the Doctrine of the Trinity, you don't actually have the Christian faith. Why do I say that? Because the very Christian faith deals with the relationships between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and their redemptive work of mankind. And so without the affirmation of the Trinity, you don't actually have the God that's revealed in Scripture throughout redemptive history. We don't actually have the, uh, the economic work, that is, the econo- economic redemptive work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their redemptive work of mankind. That's not even a factor. So we don't even have the very grounds for the Christian faith and the hope that we have. Because the hope that we have stands up on the shoulders of the Trinity God.
0: Absolutely. And we already have some fans here. If uh, (laughs) the Holy One of Israel states that this guy doesn't know God's identity, Moses speak to a trinity, to a burning bush. And hey, Moses, uh, sorry, Moses, the Holy One of Israel, if uh, you would like to stick around, we will address some of those things. And, you know, you might learn something uh, by the time we're done with this video. So hopefully you can, if as long as you can hang here respectfully, I don't mind you commenting and disagreeing. But let's, let's do this in a respectful manner. Uh, so, brother, brother Rick, why don't you start us off?
1: All right. So here's what I want to do. Before we dive into definitions and to the scriptures, I am going to start with some scripture. Truth be told, part, part of the issue here when we deal with this doctrine of the Trinity, this is a really important, crucial topic, is that we need to be fully engaged, our complete persons. And so scripture tells us in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37, and Jesus is talking here. He's And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so part of the reason why I'm starting with that verse of scripture is because we want to be fully engaged in this. This is not something where we are just looking at from the heart or even from what we do from our bodies, but even our minds must be fully engaged in this. God created us with a mind, and so there's a sentiment of anti-intellectualism that is that is very pervasive even in our day. That that says if something is complicated or something requires work or if we have to dig and wrestle with the text, then it's not spiritual. It's it's uh, not worthy of our time as believers. I'm here to tell you that we're told to that we are to love God even with our minds, according to Jesus Christ. And he echoes the very words of the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we prosecute this topic today, our minds must be fully engaged. Now, I wanna give you another quote from Mike Riccardi. Uh, he is actually, I believe, a professor at the Master's Seminary. He says, the height of our worship will never exceed the depths of our theology. The heights of our worship will never exceed the depths of our theology. And so Chris was asking the question why the doctrine of, of the Trinity is so important. Another reason is that it actually undergirds our worship. To know the God of the Bible is the very uh, foundation of worship. So if we don't know who we're worshiping. It's gonna be difficult to, to give them proper praise and honor, right? So that's why... Uh, that quote from Mike Riccardi is very important. I'll give you another one from James White. James White says the deepest feelings and emotions evoked by the Spirit of God are not directed towards unclear, nebulous, fuzzy concepts, but towards the cleared, revealed truths of God concerning his love, the work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It makes no sense whatsoever in human relations to say I love my wife while doing our best to remain ignorant of her personal likes, dreams, etc., you know, I can, I can relate to that. Uh, Chris, we're both married men, right? And if I go around and I say, Well, I, I love my wife and I desire not to know who she is, that ultimately demonstrates my lack of love or feigned love, rather, for my wife, right? And so, uh, and I think you can attest to that. Like, if someone came to me and said, Rick, your wife is uh four feet 11 she has red hair and she she wears five six uh five six in women's shoes and they may say my wife's name but ladies and gentlemen that's not my wife that's not a description of who my wife is i know who my wife is and and i'll give you another thing there are things that Getting married, you learn things, Chris, and, and we all know this as married men. There are things you knew about your wife before you got married, and then there are new things you learned about your wife after you got married. We, right. we can all talk about that, right? And I'm not, and there's nothing, there's no negative here, but it's just about how we develop and grow in our relationships. And the thing is, the fact of the matter, that was still my wife. But there were there were still new things about my wife that came to my attention that gave me greater appreciation for who she is as my
0: wife. Mm -hmm.
1: So that's why I think the James White quote is very good. And that's actually from his book, The Forgotten Trinity. And later on, we can talk more about resources later. Right. Um, Then I want to give you a quote from uh, John four, verse twenty three. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says in John 4, verse 23, But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, one of the things I want to mention about the word truth, especially the way Jesus uses it, you know, we're actually taking Jesus's words here and the way John uses it specifically in the prologue of John in John chapter one, he's not talking about truth in the sense of something error and something that's not error. The way that John typically uses pru- uh, truth in his gospel is the revelation or fulfillment. So there's a fulfillment of how the people of God are going to worship. And one of the things that we will dig into in our discussion about the Trinity is the fact that the doctrine of the Trinity, the revelation of the Trinity, comes about in the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That is where we have the full revelation of the Trinity and Scripture, okay? The other thing I want to bring up, why this conversation is so important, is that throughout, especially if you think about the Old Testament Scriptures, if we think about the trial of the false gods in Isaiah chapter 40 through 48, what was the emphasis there is that we can discern, we can know the true God versus the false God. We can separate idols versus the true and living God. And so there is much and great attention on about the people of God knowing who the true God is, right? There are certain characteristics of the true God. And if, if those characteristics are not met out, you're not, you and I are not dealing with the true God. So why am I bringing this up? Because failure, failure my friends, to to track along with the revelation of scripture, to to look at what scripture says about the character and nature of God, to brush that aside and come up with any idea of who God must be is tantamount to idolatry, which was the problem we saw throughout the Old Testament and is the problem we even see in the New Testament as well. So I kind of added additional reasons to your question because the point is this is a I don't want people to think Chris and those listening that this is like well this is you can you can just uh agree the disagree type thing. No this is a core essential doctrine of the Christian faith. You like I said again, you do not have the Christian faith without the Trinity. So now that we have done some of the preliminaries. It's now important that we give a working definition because if we're going to prosecute this topic, Chris, we need, and and for everyone listening, I believe it's important that we define our terms. I think Chris, you agree with that as well. So what is the Trinity? I'm gonna give you three foundations, three foundations. Within one being that is God, there exists eternally, Three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in that definition, it's very specific because in that definition I just gave you of the Trinity, there are three core foundations that we need to unpack. Foundation number one is monotheism. There is only one God. Every from, from, from the Old Testament scriptures all the way to the New Testament scriptures, the affirmation of monotheism is clear from the front of the book to the back of the book. There is only one God. Foundation number two. There are three divine persons. There are three divine persons. That's foundation number two. Foundation number three. The persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Yep. All right. So here's here's what happens is that these these foundations are so important because if you play with any of those foundations you end up in error. If you remove any of those foundations, so if you remove the fact that they're co-eternal and co-equal, you end up with subordinationism. You know that's that was an that was an error at the very beginning of the church that had to be dealt with, right? So um, even the issue, the reason why the uh, Nicene Creed was even uh constructed right was because of the aaronism which is a form of subordinationism right is that you know christ is a lesser god right he's not like the father right in essence right so that's a that's a the error of subordinationism so you you have other errors too so if you deny one god then you end up with polytheism Mm -hmm. or some people falsely accuse us chris of tritheism right absolutely we believe i want to say this again and
0: scripture affirms and teaches in one God. Right. And l- okay. let me let me jump in here as well. Because yeah. If, yeah. if the constant charge against us is you keep going to verses that say, well, the scripture says there is one God. Well, you're not even on the same playing field because we already believe that. So going right. to show that there is one God is not addressing the Trinitarian position. And so right. I just wanted to say that uh, to those who are in the chat. Make sure you're listening. If you disagree, at 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 best, you'll have a better understanding of the Trinity by the time we get done with this. So, brother, continue, please.
1: Yeah, and that's a very good point. Is because if someone says we, you know, there's only one God. Well, that's that's the first foundation we would all would all affirm, right. and so we're not actually engaging the argument at that point. Right. So to engage the argument, I think we have to deal with the other two aspects, the other two foundations. There are three divine persons, and the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. I think dealing with those the second and third foundations actually gets one into the ring, gets one into the argument. Um, the other thing I want to bring up is the fact that we do not affirm partialism. And so what do I mean by that? That that even though there are three eternally, they, three eternally existed in unique relationship to one another, because they're, and we're going to deal with some of that later when we look at the text of scripture, each of the persons is said to be eternal, each is said to be co-equal with the other as to their divine nature, they have the same essence, right? Yep. Each fully shares the one being God, that is God. The Father is not one-third God. Mm-hmm. The Son is not one-third God. The Spirit is not one-third God. Each is fully God, okay? Co-equal with the others, and that's important. They never. There never was a time when the Father was not the Father. There never was a time when the Son was not the Son. There never was a time when the Spirit was not the Spirit. Their relationship is eternal, right? And not in the sense of having uh, been for a long time, but existing in the fact outside the realm of time itself. Okay. So what I'm saying there is not like there was a point in time, long, long time ago, when then now the son became the son and the spirit became the spirit and the father became the father. The father was always the father. The son was always the son. The spirit was always the spirit. Okay. So uh, that's important. And I I think one of the things we want to look at next, because, you know, we can keep going and digging into these definitions. But but I want to I want to uh, consider the the uh, thumbnail. That is, is it biblical? It's all right that I define it. But now, like, okay, because the Bible actually teach this. So where I want to start is Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six. Now, I know there may be some people like, wow, you're going to go there? Yes, because we affirm that there's only one God, okay? Okay? Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? Right? So I, here's what I want you to, to focus on because I don't want you, I want you to trek with me, okay? Is look at the, the divine name there. You have the Tetragrammaton there mentioned a few times in that text, you have Yahweh mentioned there. And what I would encourage you to do is look at what the, uh, those who took and translated the Hebrew uh, scriptures to the Greek what word they actually use to actually um, translate the divine name and for Deuteronomy 6. That's going to be important, right? Because we're going to come, we're going to look at some scripture in the New Testament. And I'm going I'm to show you why that's important Absolutely. later, okay? Yep. Yep. We, I'm just setting things up yeah, for coming to Set the
0: stage, yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: set the, we got to set the stage. So, bottom line, what, why do I come to this text? Because we believe that the Lord is one. Now it's using the word ikad there for one, okay? And one doesn't necessarily mean numerical one, right? And I think sometimes people get in trouble because you're looking at one numerically. But what what I want to do, the reason why I want to look at Old Testament texts is that the Old Testament scriptures, while it does not give us the full revelation of the Trinity, gives us hints that there is a complexity that there's a there's diversity in the unity of God, right? And so we can go back and we can look at even um, in Genesis chapter one. What does Genesis chapter one say? So I'm gonna look at Genesis chapter one, around verse um, verse twenty six and twenty seven. Okay. Look what 26 says, and then God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There have been many theories that people say, well, the us is all, you know, those are the those are the heavenly hosts. Those, those could be angels or those could be that. What's interesting is that what it says in the verse is let us make man in our image so that you have to take what the full verse is saying there uh, and, and deal with that. Also, what you will notice is that even the reference to God being their Elohim. And I know there's different uses for God, right? Sometimes it can be judges and things like that. So I'm aware that context determines the meaning of how Elohim is used, okay? But what's interesting is, is that you have a plural noun associated with a singular verb. So what it's not conveying is the idea of many gods in this text. That what it's probably conveying, and I'm saying all we're, all we're doing now is looking at hints. What it's likely conveying is there is some type of diversity in the unity. We haven't proven that yet fully, but we're just looking at hints in the text of Scripture. Let me give you something else to consider. Go to Genesis chapter 19 around verse
0: 24. And actually, for, and, and for all those disagreeing in the chat, I hope you're actually going to the verses and examining these things yeah. rather than just yeah. just coming here to argue, sake. So, right. hopefully, you have your Bible open, <laughs> have your tab open, and you're going to the text. So that's because that's what right. we're doing. Yeah.
1: So what we're doing, we're not saying that the the here, I want everyone to listen up because if people like Trendy's not there. Trendy's that my argument. I want everyone to listen. Is not I'm not saying that the full revelation of the Trinity is in the Old Testament. That's not my argument. All I am simply saying at this point is that there's indications in the Old Testament that seem to point to a diversity in the unity of God. That is, that ikad that we looked at back in Deuteronomy 6, there seems to be, we haven't got anything conclusive yet, 100% conclusive, there seems to be more than mesiai. That's all I'm trying to establish right now, okay? So I'm not trying to say this is the nail in the coffin. That's not what I'm trying to establish at this point, okay? So if you're rushing and saying, I'm trying to prove that these verses are saying the doctrine of the Trinity, you're not listening to what I'm saying. So follow along with the the argument. Look at at chapter 19, verse 24. Now, this is very interesting because earlier on, you know, um, there was a conversation with God and Abraham about the pending judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and the conclusion was, will not the Lord of all the earth do what is right. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right, right? We know that the dialogue. But look, let's, look here in, in chapter 19, verse 24, it says, then Yahweh, one one there, you see that? Reigned on Solomon Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh, number two, out of heaven. So we have one Yahweh, On earth, in Solomon and Gomorrah, right, on the ground, right? And there's another Yahweh in heaven. That is interesting, right? Very interesting. It just, what it does is it makes us, hmm, there's something going on here. You know, so those are the things that I want to bring out
0: and get us to think about and consider uh that this this is actually a crucial point that i want those who deny the trinity to actually listen to what was just said because you know oftentimes you know people just they'll just go on their arguments but if you actually listen to what was said you have two distinct persons being associated with the being of yahweh this does not make sense in um modalistic systems in in Other Unitarian forms Mm -hmm. where you have two distinct persons being described with a name, the Mm -hmm. being of God. And so I just want I just want to bring that bring that out with clarity so people actually hear what's being said. So,
1: yeah, you you bring up something because the, the problem oftentimes is that people approach the text and they presuppose Unitarianism. They say, "Well, all, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, singular pronouns." And they say, "Well, okay, keep reading." My 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 uh my response to people is just keep reading. <laughs> if you keep reading and you run across a text like that, you have to reconcile Unitarianism with a text like this. It's going to be difficult to de- reconcile that because you have Yahweh in heaven and Yahweh on earth, right? Two persons, as as Chris said, are being uh the, the being of Yahweh is being ascribed to them, right? Very interesting, right? No conclusions yet. Right. Just looking at the biblical data. Okay. Another text we can look at, another text we can look at is um, I tell you what, we can actually look at let's look at got so many texts here. Let's actually shift gears and actually I'm going to, I might come back to some Old Testament text, but I'm going to jump to some New Testament text. Specifically, I want to jump to First Corinthians chapter eight. Let's just go right in. <laughs> Let's deal with it. So read, and the reason why I want to go there is because we, I could keep reading all these texts and, and we could lose the fact we could spend 30 minutes going and lose the fact that I just started with the Shema. Right. So let's, I think it'd be worth our time and be edification for everyone to, um, to go ahead and look at what Paul says in first Corinthians and what I want to do in first Corinthians, instead of reading verse six, I want to pull out and look at the context. Okay. Cause I think the context is going to be very helpful. Okay. Now I'm going to begin in verse one, first Corinthians chapter eight, verse one. Now concerning foods offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. So the issue is about food offered to idols. So that's the context here. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there's there's no God but one. Oh, you see that? So he's so right now, Paul is setting up just like, similar to what we read or looked at in Deuteronomy 6.4. Mm-hmm. Although there are, may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth as indeed there are many many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist now what did I tell you? Let's see if you've been listening. What did I tell you to pay attention to back in Deuteronomy chapter 6? I said, look at that word Yahweh back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? Which is divine name. And what did I say? I said, what if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the of Hebrew text or Hebrew Bible, when the translators got to the divine name, what Greek word did they use? Curios. Does anyone know? No, I know sorry, Chris knows.
0: Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they use curios, right? Curios. What is word is is the apostle Paul using here and verse six for Jesus? Or curios as well. And remember, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there said there is one Lord, right? The Lord is one, rather, right? The Lord is one. So in verse 6 in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the apostle Paul is definitely referencing the Shema. There's no doubt about it. He, he has the Shema in view, but what he's actually doing here. Is remember how I said that word ikad doesn't mean you can't you can't just assume numerical one there. That's the problem. That it's unity, right? And now he's unpacking the diversity of that unity by mentioning the fact that you have the father and the son both here. And notice the son, what's what is being ascribed to him? That title of kurios is ascribing to him deity, but also the characteristic of Christ, through whom are all things. And through whom we exist. That is a characteristic of God and God alone. Only God is attributed as the creator of all things. Right. right. Not something that was created by God. In fact, all we have to do for those who may say, well, I, I, I reject your answer. I reject your presentation. Is all we have to do in the, in the next text I was going to go to really quickly is John chapter 1 uh the prologue of john to basically take paul's words here and corroborate these words with the apostle john what does the what does the apostle john say about christ right so let's go to john i'm going to quickly there and then we'll look at some other text if we if we affirm here's the thing where i'm going with this if we affirm the doctrine of the trinity we we have to also affirm the deity of Christ that goes hand in hand. You can't have a doctrine of the Trinity and then reject the deity of Christ. Okay. So these doctrines, here's the thing, and, and Chris knows this: these doctrines are not isolated from one another, they complement one another. So if you if you are an error in one doctrine, you can't affirm another. So if you by rejecting the deity of Christ, you also reject the Trinity. <laughs> Because they're, 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 they're complementary to one another, right? right? So look at John chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, or the logos, right? So I'm going to stop here because there are some people that have problems with logos. In Greek thought, in ancient Greek thought, the logos was the impersonal ordering system of the universe, of the cosmos. But for the Apostle John, the Apostle John being a God-fearing Jew, okay, not a pagan— he would, he would not make Lagos an impersonal ordering principle, okay? And we're going to see that just by reading. And the word or the Lagos was what? With God, right? So right here you have Lagos in pro theon, right? So you actually have that word pros here is the idea of the word being face-to-face or in a face-to-face relationship with theon, okay, which refers to God, right, and here's the critical, in the third part of this verse, and the word was God, you see that, and the word was God, this is critical, because whatever, this is not saying the word is the father, it's not saying that, it's saying the word is of the same quality of whatever the father is. Right. So, and uh, not to be overly technical here, but what you will see here is that uh, the way that Greek construction is laid out, you have what's called a preverbal verbal uh, nominative, right? Construction that basically indicates that this is basically telling us the quality of the word, not saying the word is equal to theon. So that, that's very, and we want to dig into that more we can. But that's essentially what John, and he's very careful. In fact, if John wanted to say that the word is God, that's the, and essentially how some people would say, well, the word is the father, right? Or something like that. He could have he removed uh, the definite article uh, in front of the uh, Lagos. He could have removed that right. if he wanted to do that, and they would be equal to one another, right? Uh, But he didn't do that in order to uh, keep the construction that would show the quality of the word, the quality of the logos. But I want to keep reading. Verse two. He was in the beginning with God. Right now, some people will say, see, got you. The beginning there means that, yeah, they were there whenever beginning started. But I already said that in our definition that we are not saying that God here, nor the word who is of the same quality. Uh, of god or Theon here um had a beginning right so as far back the whole idea if you look at uh, uh was is in the perfect i believe the perfect tense um imperfect tense i'm sorry so the whole idea is is that that aim there is as far as you can stretch back time if and it's hard to grasp because we're finite creatures. As far as you can go back, the word was there and the father was there. That's the whole idea that's being expressed. So when the beginning started, whenever that it was, God was there and the word was there. All things, this is the point I'm trying to get to as I correlate this back to 1 Corinthians 8:6. All things were made through him. Now, who's the him referring to? The word and without him was not anything made that was made. So we have a category distinction here. There's a category of things that were made, and then there's another category of things that are not made. The word clearly described here is in the category of not made. Because if he was made, then we have a problem, right? Because look what the verse says, all things that were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. So that would exclude him because he's the one who made the things that were made. You follow that. So he's not in the made category. Okay. Other verses would attest to that as well. But this is a good text right here. So notice this is only something God can do. And as we see here clearly in this text, that the quality of God is attributed to the Word. Now, if I go on down to verse 14, because some people might say, well, who is the word? Well, what does verse 14 say? We go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Right. So we have we now if you, if you were ever in doubt to the identity of who the word is. The word is the son who is Christ. So I'm, I'm connecting the dots back from first Corinthians eight, six to John one and following. So I, I think that's pretty clear there for those who are trying to, if you want to try to make a category between, well, the father's God, but, but Christ clearly is not God. No, they're, they both are, uh, share, share the being God. That is what the scripture affirms here, and that's what why we need to look at all of what scripture says.
0: Real, real quick, real quick, Rick, uh, your, your I don't know your camera is like turning the lights on and turning the lights off. I don't know if if that could be fixed, but just just want to let you know uh, it's not that okay. big of a deal. We can we can hear how, you. How, how am I, now? Yeah, how am I looking good. now? Looks good. Uh, let's just see if it uh, stays. So okay. as of, as of now, it's good. So yeah, let's let's keep let's keep it going.
1: Yeah. Okay. We'll press on. So um what we also need to consider is that their text, you know what I want to do? I- I'm gonna try something. I'm going to um uh, I'm going to turn off one of my mics and maybe that will help the situation.
0: Okay. Yeah, try that. Let me do that. Just give me a sec. And and allow me to say this, because I, I see a lot of the the arguments are really elementary arguments because they're, they're not even understanding what we're saying, because I'm still seeing comments saying, where is Trinity in the Bible? <laughs> we are laying out the con- no one's saying Trinity, the word is in the Bible, but the concept. Yeah, those are two different things. Where's Bible in the Bible? Where's right. there's so many things that people believe in. So show me substitutionary atonement right. in the Bible. Show me uh, the right. hypostatic union. I mean, yeah. so many things that you, many people are from yeah. that conceptually the Bible does emphatically teach. So let's let's lay off of the elementary arguments here. So
1: can, can I can I address that? I think yes, that, absolutely. I, I think that's worth to address. And I, and I like how you tack tack the issue there, uh, Chris. Is that what people will often do is is attack it by saying, well, the objection is is that if the word is not in the Bible, then it's a false teaching. We can't affirm it, okay? So the way it normally goes is that that word Trinity is never in the Bible, okay? Um, it's Therefore, it's an extra biblical word. And if somebody came to me and said, is the word Trinity in the Bible? Of course, I would say the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But that's, that doesn't include the concept. Of the being taught in the bible for example uh there are a lot of things that are not in the bible the word bible is not in the bible <laughs> right for example right uh the word uh o- omnipresence is not in the bible the word omniscience is not in the bible but we would not we would not deny the omni well we live in strange times <laughs> we should not deny the omnipresence and omniscience of god uh, because that's clearly taught in Scripture. That's, that may be a topic for a different time, but it's clearly taught in Scripture.
0: Right. That
1: That's a concept based on verses, multiple verses that you, that show the character nature of God. And yet, you wouldn't deny those things, that God is all-knowing, right? Omniscient, that God is everywhere at the same time. He's omnipresent, right? That God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, Right? You wouldn't deny those things. In fact, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in in Daniel chapter 4 came to his senses realizing that God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He rises up kings and takes kings down. That's an all-powerful being there. And so you have multiple scriptures. You have uh, Psalm uh, 113, the God, uh, you know, does whatever he wants in heaven and earth, Right. Uh, you have psalm thirty three you have all these verses that attest to the, the 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 omniscience i mean the omnipotence of God and yet the word omnipotence is never used in any of those texts <laughs> right but if I said God is omnipotent, no one's gonna say no or at least any person that understands the Bible wouldn't say no
0: yeah and and it would be a yeah, faulty it, it would be a faulty conclusion yeah. to arrive that the just because a word isn't mentioned in the bible like omnipotence therefore we should deny god being omnipotent so you you you'll you'll come to some really heretical views if that's your kind of your hermeneutic
1: right yeah the question we should ask ourselves is does the concept that is represented by the word trinity does that appear in the bible that's the question we should ask ourselves absolutely not does the word appear (laughs) i mean because think think about it though think about it we can run ourselves Think about this, uh, Chris. I mean, I can even think about Bible translations and how words and, and linguistics, how things have changed over time. So, if you go back to like 1611, there are going to be words there are, are going to be in that Bible that's not going to be in modern translations today. So, is that a, is that a false? Is that a, 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 a are we now teaching false doctrine now? Right. Because well, I guess it depends on who you ask. you know you know there's always some group out there has got a problem right right but the problem is isn't that a faulty argument you see you see where i go and then i could even go deeper we know that the original languages were not even english for the new testament they were koine greek koine greek ladies and gentlemen we it wasn't english uh in the in the uh during the you know that was being uh presented it was koine greek old testament scriptures we know you got uh, either you know Aramaic and you got Hebrew, uh, and you got even a little bit of Aramaic in the New Testament. So uh, the thing is, you see how quickly one can get in trouble and I, I, I want to delve more because I, I, I hear this argument, this really fallacious argument all the time about if the word is not there, then it can't be it can't be a valid teaching. Uh, theological terms such as Trinity, have arisen in church history principally because of the church's commitment to theological precision. You hear that? It's because when someone rejects the term, what they also may be, it may be an indicator of is a lack of appreciation of church history. And and I'm going to quote and some may like the person I quote and some may not, but I think it makes the point. I'm going to actually quote John Calvin. Uh, from uh, Institute of the Christian Religion about the term Trinity. Okay, uh, what he what he says in regards to that, he says that Trinity has come about because of what he described as slippery snakes. Slippery snakes is that the reason why, and I'm, a, I'm a, and this is going to be important. And I'm actually glad the objection was made, Chris. This was because this is going to be a great teachable moment
0: absolutely by the way
1: how's my camera doing it looks like i might be a little jerky over here
0: yeah it's still that i, I just got a photo up and we can still hear you fine though.
1: okay okay it may be like one of these radio moments yes yes <laughs> so we'll press on
0: yes we will all
1: uh, right so the issue here when we think about it is think about all of the teachings of heretical teachings throughout her church history many of these historic uh, his, uh historic i mean heretical teachings throughout church history and the need for definitions because of heretical teachings. Okay. And what I mean is that the favorite trick of the heretic is what we call study ambiguity. And what I mean by that, that means that the means of communication whereby concepts are intentionally left ambiguous, theological precision is necessary to combat that tactic. For example, you hear, you might hear people say, well, we just don't know The nature of God, we just we just can't know. So let's just come together and join hands in unity. (laughs) Right. We God, God God's God's just a mystery, and so we. Great is the mystery of Godliness, (laughs) and I did a video on my channel on that very very topic because I kept hearing that said over and over by by a specific person. Right. right? Yeah. See, it's that same idea is that we 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 you know God is so big we can't get our head wrapped around God, and there's some truth in that, but. If you take it to its extreme, it's going to present a lot of error. The truth is, yes, God is incomprehensible to a finite human mind, but it does not preclude the fact that God has revealed himself through the text of Scripture to us, which presupposes that even with our finite mind, we can apprehend the God that has revealed himself, ladies and gentlemen. Right. If we could not apprehend that God, then it would be ludicrous for him to reveal himself through the scriptures to us because it would be nonsense for us. Right. Do we understand that? Yes. But the fact that he has revealed himself through scripture, right, through the words of the prophets, through the words of men carried along by the Holy Spirit, the fact that he has done that, right, presupposes that we can understand and apprehend what he is telling us. Does that mean we have full comprehension of a in, e, eternal, infinite being? No, and no one should be arguing that. In fact, when someone goes there and says that we can't, based on that, know anything about God, that actually slaps God in the face because it's the God of Scripture that desires for us to know him. In fact, everything from Romans 1 that talks about he has revealed himself to us and what he's created and what he has made so we're without excuse— and even uh, what, what's called general revelation and also special revelation through the scriptures presupposes that we can know who God is. I think I, I think I said my point.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I will also say that uh, I will say a little bit about the Protestant reformation, um, the Protestant reformation of the 16th century. um and I will say that regardless, there may be some here in your audience that may have certain feelings about the Protestant Reformation, but I think it's a good point. I think it illustrates a point here. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was a contrast between studied ambiguity and theological precision. The basic issue of the Reformation concerned the grounds of our justification. Is our justification grounded in a righteousness? that uh, adheres that uh, within us or a righteousness that is imputed to us? That's the question, right? That is, is our righteousness within us or from God? The controversy came down to one word, imputation. The Reformers objected to the Roman Catholic teaching, saying the only way any person can be justified is to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed or transferred to his account. See, why Why am I bringing up this? Is this off topic? No, this is very much on topic in, in, in regard to the uh, recent objection. Attempting to resolve the dispute, many people, check this out, many people suggested that the two sides should simply say, we are justified by Christ. But my question is, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean you are justified <laughs> by Christ? They said that since Roman Catholics and Protestants agreed that people are justified by Christ, everyone could hold hands singing hymns pray together and stay together this proposed statement was so ambiguous that people who believe they are justified by the infusion of righteousness of jesus and people who believe they are justified by the imputation of righteousness of jesus could agree on it you hear that however these two views of justification are as far apart from each other as the east is from the west The idea was that the controversy could be avoided and division healed by using a formula that was intentionally ambiguous, a statement that could be interpreted in radically different ways. And we're seeing radically different ways in which people are trying to even present the Godhead even today. So the Protestants insisted on the term imputation even at the cost of division. The point here is why do we use The word Trinity is because definitions matter, because theology matters. And if everyone just came to the text and in a perfect world, rightly handled the text of Scripture, then we wouldn't have to come up with this term uh, Trinity to to stake out our position. Right. Because all one has to do is look through church history and you will see the twisting and contortions of what the Bible clearly teaches, which necessitated people clarifying and defining terms in such a way to militate militate against these heretical views yeah,
0: this is this
1: That's is why we have these terms
0: yeah this is a good point um you know i i was talking to a brother in the lord who uh you know he he didn't want to use the doctrine of the trinity even though he he didn't want to use that word even though he believes in the concept and i was encouraging him to use that word because i said define god I told him to define God. And he said, well, God is father, son, spirit. And I said, yep. And the modus would agree with you. So with the, so will the uh, polytheists. And, and the point I was getting to him, if, if we, we aren't able to use vocabulary that we describes and wraps up our belief, we'll have to end up for the next 30 minutes to an hour explaining what we believe about God, rather than just giving a, a short summation of what's already been defined and, and fits that theological vocabulary. And I think you would agree with that.
1: Yeah, I give a great illustration and I'll get back to the text. You remember in Judges chapter, Judges chapter 12, there was a skirmish between the uh, uh, Gilead and the soldiers of Gilead and the soldiers of uh, Ephraim. and the And they came up with a test to know who was uh, truly, uh, truly a Gilead and who was really a spy.
0: Yes, yes. And the
1: test that came up is to say a specific word, and yes. that word was
0: Shibboleth. Yes, Shibboleth. <laughs> That's right.
1: But the problem was, you remember, that the uh, the soldiers of Ephraim could not pronounce the word, That's right. right? That's right. They would, they, they would remove the H from the word, and that would indicate that they were not of the soldiers of Gilead, and the orders was to slay them immediately, right? That was right. the test. And so Trinity is just like our, just like that, right? Is our is our way of making distinctions, important distinctions. And just like you were talking to that individual about encouraging the use of word, we need to make those distinctions because distinctions are important. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I hope I didn't veer too off far, off course, but I think it was worth venturing down that corridor. In light of some of the statements that were made okay so I want to go back to the text of Scripture once again the doctrine of the Trinity affirms the reality that the father's God and no and most people would say hey yeah I, I, I can track with you the father's God no problem there some people on this that are listening in may have take issue with Jesus being God right well, they're But when they do that, they're going to have to take issue with Scripture. They're going to have to take the issue with Scripture. Such, for example, let me go to a text of Scripture. Let me go to John. Well, I already went to John 1. That should be in Ellen coffin. But if you need more, I have more for you. Go to John chapter 17. I love this text.
0: Absolutely. So Jesus
1: is considered by many the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. He's coming to the end of his, his earthly ministry, and he's praying to the Father. OK, so I'm going to begin at verse one. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. to All to all whom you have given him. OK, some may have a problem with the fact that authority is given. To the son, they may say, well, if he's the son and he's like the father in every respect, why is authority given to the son? When someone makes that statement, what they fail to understand is the doctrine of the incarnation or the condescension. Absolutely. Is that what is in view, what isn't always in context here is the obedient servant. Uh, Jesus Christ in the economic trinity, the son, takes the role as the bond servant as the obedient servant and always doing the will of the father. This is not an issue of essence. This is an issue of role. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make sure you understand that because I can hear murmurs. I know, I know the objections I've heard them a thousand times. I want to press on. And this is eternal life that here, check this out. Now this is amazing. What is eternal life? Check this out. This yeah. is eternal life that you this, will, this, that this key, will. This is key
0: guys. This is key.
1: Check this out. This is important. This is not a throwaway text, because I know so many want to jump somewhere else in the scriptures, right, or focus on certain things in this verse. But notice what's being emphasized here. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And that's where people stop. People stop like that. There's literally like a some type of uh, selective reading of the text for most people and they're done. But there's more that the verse doesn't stop right there and you see there's actually a kai there right and Jesus Christ whom you have sent so eternal life is based on knowing the father and the son you see that so it's what? the it's the father and the son who gives life. This is only something that God and God alone can do, which yes. points to the fact that Jesus is God.
0: Very very good, and 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 that's kind of what I was going to go to. What a, what a blasphemous statement if Jesus is not God, right? Because who who else who else would be able to say this, right? That uh, salvation is wrapped up in yeah knowing the Father, but knowing me too, right? Unless you are of the same quality or essence. As the father. Um, and this is not just a well. Uh, yeah. Knowing. Uh, knowing the son because the father sent him as a means of salvation. We're told throughout scripture that only God is the savior. Um, not just that God sent yeah. a means to be saved, but he he, he personally. Yeah. No. You know, and so because I've seen that as a response. Well, uh, you know, God sent the son as a means to be saved, but it's still the father at uh, getting credit, no. Right. Jesus wraps himself up equally. No, notice that, right? The father and the son. It is the equal right. uh, knowing that you have to you equally need to know the right. father and the son. Matter of fact, you don't know the father without knowing the son, as as That's he right. says in um you know yeah. other passages. I got, I got more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah. on, let's go.
1: <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. I uh, echo all of K. Dub's sentiments there. Okay. And uh, the question I would ask of all of you who are in doubt, right, is show me a prophet or a quote unquote man of God, because that was kind of the title given to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Show me anybody where knowing the prophet, because we would affirm that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He takes on those three offices there. But show me any other prophet in scripture where he says to know me is to, to have everlasting life right you will not find anyone else in the text of scripture that would dare utter that because they know to utter that would be blasphemous
0: right absolutely
1: yeah okay so i'll continue on i glorified you on earth verse four having accomplished the work that you gave me to do now verse five this is where i'm going to get to and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory check this out with the glory that i had with you before the mm. world existed
0: mm.
1: now that speaks to if that doesn't speak to the deity of christ and his divine consciousness the fact that this is not just some guy you know this 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 uh verse of to- totally militates the, against the idea that jesus is merely some kind of exalted a prophet who was given a mission filled with the holy spirit you actually have divine consciousness here that he's aware of the scenario that he had even before the existence of the world right which if he has divine consciousness that speaks to his divine nature which means that jesus is god absolutely okay like i and now now what i want to do i want to go for those who are really like in doubt. I'm going to I'm going go to Matthew 11. And, and why you say, "Well, Rick, I thought this was about the Trinity." Yes, this is about the Trinity, but like I said, in order in order to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, you also have to affirm the deity of Christ as well. They go hand in hand. You don't have a doctrine of the Trinity if Jesus is not God, if the Holy Spirit is not God, right? Right. right. So I'm looking at I'm I'm going go to Matthew chapter 11. Now check this out. Matthew chapter 11, towards the end of the chapter, this is really interesting, towards the end of the chapter, I am picking up at verse 25, Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son. Check this out. This is why I want to focus on. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son Mm. chooses to reveal him. Mm. So we see divine prerogative here. You see that? So no one knows the son, like you don't know who the son is except the father. And then it goes the other way around. And he says, and he says, and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Right. So it's it's the prerogative of the son to reveal the father to whoever he wants.
0: Christ is the divine exegete, right? He's the, he's, a, he's the what, one who what, makes yeah, him known. Yes. For who can, who can make God known except God himself, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. What does, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to jump back to John 1.
0: Yes, yes. What does
1: John 1 say? Look what John 1 says, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Mm. Only the God, and I know that the King James says only the Son, but well we can talk about those textual variants. That may be a good conversation. Who is at the Father's side? He has made him known or that word for made known is how we get the word exegesis has revealed him or exegeted him. Right. It's only through the son that we know the father. Mm. And we just read in Matthew 11, the son, he has his own prerogative to not only reveal, but choose who he's going to reveal him to.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And if you, all you have to do this to see that, Is if you just keep reading Matthew, especially when you get to Matthew chapter 13, you see Jesus Christ actually demonstrating that. After you see the events of Matthew 12, and then he starts speaking in parables, he's basically telling you, yep, yep, I'm the one who has the prerogative of revealing the the, the nature, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And I choose to reveal them to ones I want to reveal them to and hide them from the ones I want to hide them from. Yes. And we see him doing that. Now these are just not throwaway words. We actually see Jesus doing that beginning in Matthew chapter 13 and following. Yes. Okay. Now I want to go to Ma- I want to go to John chapter 10. John 10. John 10 is a good text. Absolutely. Talks about I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door. You know, that's where we get all these texts here. Notice what it says, beginning in verse um, 28, John 10, 28 and following. I, that's referring to Jesus. He's saying, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Now, think about this. Think about if Jesus it can't do what he's saying he's doing, right? He's declaring, right? Mm-hmm. Think of the magnitude of these words he's declaring, and then I want you to think about: is who is the only one that can do that? If you and many of you who may be protesting, you should know about the God of Israel. Some of you who may be protesting about the God of Israel being the one who says, "I'm the only Savior. I'm the only one who can save." That's right, right. I'm the only one who can redeem. That's right, right. And when he when he redeems, he does it perfectly, right. And now you see Jesus saying, "I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given it to me, is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out, snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one." And it doesn't say "I and the Father is one." It's, it says "are" as plurality. There is making distinction of persons, right? But they're they're unified in purpose and mission, and because their purpose and missions about salvation, the only one who can save is God. All you got to do is read Isaiah forty three ten. There's only one Savior, and that's God, that's, that's right. Yahweh, that's right. And Not- Jesus here is saying, "I can save. I I can. No one can snatch out of my hand. I can perfectly save, just like the Father can perfectly save. We're on one accord in this mission. That's Therefore, right. Jesus is God.
0: That's right." Not just a means that the father or God uses, right? Because yeah, this God, is, this is not God himself, here. yeah, not, not, not just a human yeah. agent that is just yeah. uh, yeah. divine like, you know, but God himself is said to be the savior alone. That means he doesn't right. send someone to do his dirty work. He he does the work. And Jesus, that, I mean, that just demonstrates yeah. that the son is God like the father
1: yeah so I want to do something. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament scriptures. I'm gonna go back to numbers because you know we uh, we were in Deuteronomy, I want to go to numbers. I want to go to the uh, the uh, the blessing of Aaron, right? Mm-hmm. So remember uh, for the children of Israel, the role of the priest of the priest was to bless the children of Israel. and the one of the most iconic uh, blessings is the blessing you see here. In Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. And I want you to catch something.
0: What was that text? For the
1: careful person observing the text, I want you to catch something. Because when I I remember doing a study a while ago, it struck me. What's going on in the text is really amazing. Okay? Now, check this
0: out. What what was that text?
1: It says Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. We can actually start at Numbers chapter 22. Numbers, I mean, Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. I'm sorry. So we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So remember, I set it up. This is about blessing the people of Israel. And what is the blessing? You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. So that Lord there is referring, using the word, the divine name, Yahweh. Okay. Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face to shine up on you and be gracious to you. So we got two Yahweh's, right? Three in verse 26, Yahweh, lift up his countenance up on you and give you peace. Right? And you, and in verse 27, you shall they, so shall they put my name up on the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now I did a whole study on the topic of Yahweh lift up his face or lift up his countenance up on up on you. So if you want to go and look at that later I highly encourage you to watch that video on my channel where I do a complete breakdown of this. But what's interesting, you know what stands out immediately? Three Yahweh's here in this blessing. And you have the blessing of being kept. And the thing is, if you notice throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the, the greatest blessing was the blessing of protection, redemption, and being kept. Right? The, the blessing that was the biggest blessing, right? Didn't didn't Yahweh always remind the children of Israel, I am the one who brought you out of the land of of egypt i am that god right so it was always anytime there was any uh skirmish or anything going on with the children of israel got the god the god of israel would always remind them of who he was by what he has always accomplished that, he, that he's a faithful god in all that he does right and so the idea of god to make his face shine up on you and be gracious to you um the, the idea of God shining his face the, the presence of God we know throughout scripture that God's face his presence was synonymous with his presence just like when um, just like when um, Moses in um, Exodus chapter um, 30 32 and 33 was petitioning the Lord about uh, continuing to uh, be among the people because without him being among the people how would they know that they would they would actually be able to enter into the land, right? And so there was a there was an appeal to of the presence of God, right? In fact, the, towards the even in Exodus, the, the idea of building the tabernacle and being among the people, you will be my God and I will be your people. Uh, that language was uh, was always part of what God had, had had said He would do in the building of the tabernacle and dwelling with them in tents. And then later on, we know the building of the the temple and and later on, the ultimately, when, the, when even when the second temple was created after uh, exile, we know that the people were uh, disenfranchised and uh, despondent about the second temple because it was not as glorious as the first. But it was pointing to a greater temple. We know that we all we have to do is read John chapter 2, and Jesus uses temple language to describe himself. In three days, I will rebuild the temple, right? And they said it took 42 years to build that temple, and they didn't realize it was referring to his body. So the point here is that we see three Yahweh's point, and, and we see another text like um, 2 Corinthians. Just look at 2 Corinthians. Chapter 13. I could say more about the uh, uh, the blessing of Aaron, but if I want to I want to press on. Just watch the video on my channel if you want to know more about that. But if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very end of that chapter, uh, it says the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So you have at the very end, this blessing, right? very similar to the the blessing of Aaron uh, that we see back in uh, Numbers chapter six, verses 22 and following. And you see that, what do you see here? This is a a triad here. This is a a, a Trinitarian uh, blessing here, right? You see the father, the son, And the Holy Spirit You see Jesus, the Son You see God And typically when Paul uses theos And most of the time Unless there's another designation there He's typically referring to the Father And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit Be with you all So that's a a, a really important text Another thing that we see Is the very great commission right? The very great commission In uh, Matthew chapter 28 Is Trinitarian in nature Right, some would uh, debate us about that but I think it's really clear where it says uh, in this text in verse 19 it says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching to deserve all that I have committed you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age so you see even in that text there we see the, the, the Trinitarian formula even in that text of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being on display. And I know that there's people that try to say, well, this was added later, or uh, they might point to people like Eusebius, and Eusebius had like a, he was referring to a shorter uh, formulation here, but all that tells me is that you haven't done your homework with Eusebius because Eusebius sometimes uses a smaller, uh, shorter formulation, but if you read his text i'm talking about looking at church history you'll see he has a longer formulation as well so I've, I've heard all kinds of theories as to why people think that this is not a an original text here what i also will hear people say this is sadly is that there is like this um 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 hebrew uh version of the new testament scriptures that precedes the greek text right. or something of like that or or i don't know if you've ever heard that before, yeah heard Chris. heard that yeah, but these that. are all theories that have ne- never been substantiated.
0: Right. What has
1: been substantiated is the fact that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of extant manuscripts all pointing to the fact that it was the uh, Greek text was the the principal text was the the text of the, the New Testament scriptures. Um, the other thing I want to bring out, and I think this is critically important too, is that some people may say, well... Rick, I, I hear what you're saying, but God does not change. You know, they'll point to Malachi three six and say, "Well, God does not change," and so you're, what you're what you're emphasizing is a God who changes. I would I would protest and say, "No, we're not emphasizing a God who changed. We're emphasizing a God who is revealing more of Himself over time," and that's why I want to present the concept, the biblical concept, of progressive uh, revelation. Even even this is not. That I or Chris or anybody else that affirms the doctrine of Trinity, we're not trying to throw this on top of the Bible. This is the revelation of the Bible. And I can show you in a few places really quickly where we can get this concept in the Bible of the idea of progressive revelation. And I would say, and Chris, we talked even before we started, you know, you, when you read Genesis, right? In fact, if when you read the promises that were given to Abraham, let's just start with that. We're, we're given promises, but but are we given how they were going to be fulfilled, starting in Genesis 12 and following? Are we are we given that, those details? We're given some of the details, but we're not given the, the full fulfillment in Genesis 12 and other passages uh, referring to the uh, Abraham, the promises given to Abraham, right? So but we're given, we're given greater fulfillment as we continue to read through Scripture, right? That's just one example, right? So I'm going to read a text. I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 to show you that the idea here is not trying to reconstruct or do some type of revisionism in regards to the, of the God of Scripture. It's to show you that the God of Scripture reveals more of himself over time. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to First Peter chapter 1. Verse 10, and I want to preface this by saying what I said before, that the doctrine of the Trinity, and I hope you remember what I said, that the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity comes to, through its fulfillment, the revelation comes to its fulfillment in the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. I know I said that earlier, but I want to repeat it just in case someone forgot that I said that. So I read verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was your that was to be your searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ. Now, if you I'm gonna pause right there because the spirit of Christ is referring to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that glorifies Christ. If you want to know more about what the Spirit of Christ, why why that title is being used. And why it refers to the Holy Spirit, I highly encourage you to look at my video entitled "The Spirit of Christ" on my channel. Okay, yes, please do, it guys. Said, that was inquiring-
0: a, that was an excellent video on on the topic of what he's talking about. Please check that out, uh, and yeah. make sure you follow yeah. uh, Rick Caldwell's channel. I'll post it in the link.
1: Yeah, inquiring what what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glory. So, you, so right now you, you have the prophets prophesying about the Messiah, about what Messiah's life would be and what he would endure and the sufferings he would face, right? We we know that. All we have to do is go back and look at various texts of scripture. Uh, we can look at various prophets and we can see that all throughout the scriptures talking about the life, prophesying about the life of the Messiah, right? But check this out. And, but Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving. They were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced. You see that? So you have a prophecy and now you have things that have now presently been announced to you through those who preach the good news. We're inferring to the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So this is not some contrivance. This is by the Holy Spirit right? Sent from heaven, things into which angels alone look, alone look. So this even raises the bar because even the angels, we talked about the prophets, but even the angels are, are, are contemplating, speculating about how is the plan of uh, redemption and salvation throughout redemptive history going to be fulfilled. So this raises the ante even high, even to the angels, Right, right? So I will give you another text in regards to the idea of progressive revelation okay so you saw that text hebrews chapter one hebrews chapter one yeah beginning in verse one long ago at many times in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets echoing what i just said and read back in first peter chapter one but in these last days now the question is when did the last days start well, all you gotta do is go and read First Peter chapter one, and we know the last days started at the coming of the sun. At the coming of the sun, that was the beginning of the last days, right? According to First Peter chapter one, around around verse twenty and following. Okay, it says, "But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world." What I want to point out back in verse 1 is the phrase, at many times and in many ways. Sometimes God spoke and he used dreams. Sometimes he used visions. In Numbers chapter 12, in reference to Moses, he said he spoke to Moses as if he was speaking to a person face to face. Remember, that was a unique relationship that God had with Moses, right? So God spoke in different ways, but we have the fullness of of the revelation and the person of the Son. That goes back to what we read back in John chapter 1 verse 18. Is the Son who exegetes the Father, right? It's the Son alone who fully explains the Father, right? And in the explanation of the Father, we also have the fuller revelation of the nature of God. That's why we, I said earlier, the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us through the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So with those two things added on, right, in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, as we just read back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, that is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. We have not an addendum, not some addition, but what, what was already who God was fully revealed in the person of the Son and the giving of the Spirit. You see that? That's, the, that's what we're saying when we say that all we're saying with the doctrine of Trinity is not that we're God is changing; God is simply re- revealing to us more of who He is. Okay. Um. There's more I could go. I, I guess. Uh, how are we doing with time?
0: We're, I wonder. Yeah, we're doing good. You. Uh, I, I do want. I, let me let me bring out a, another text because. <clears throat> Uh, you, you, you explain that, you know, uh, proving the deity of Christ, establishing the deity of Christ is actually proof for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, yes. And I want to bring out a verse because this verse is actually very key to me. Uh, or verse is Revelation chapter five and the issue when it comes to worship, because I've seen people try to get out of this text and. <laughs> do backflips trying to get around what this text is saying. Um, but there's clearly worship going on in heaven, right? I mean, you got the four living creatures around the elders, you have the lamb staying, you have, you have the one sitting on the throne, right? Which is distinct from the lamb. Mm -hmm. So right there, you have two divine beings, uh, two divine persons right there. Let's just make that clear. But nevertheless, uh, starting at verse nine. Right after they're playing their instruments and all this, the prayers of the saints are going up. Verse nine, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking to the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Verse eleven To the Father, I believe this is distinguished, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, myriads of myriads, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Just a spectacular event going on in in the heavens. Just amazing insight that the Lord has given to us, right, about the worship going on in heaven. And just in case someone wants to deny that this is actual worship, Read 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Wow. Notice that, right? That's very key. The one on the throne and to the lamb. These are two distinct persons right here. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Wow. Uh, And the four living creatures said. Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Here's what I would ask for those who say, "Well, okay, well, it's a different kind of worship." Prove that from thirteen to fourteen, right? Because you have, you you don't have no distinction of worship here. You have equal worship given to the one that's on the throne and the one to the Lamb. And so, I I, I think this is a strong case for uh equal worship to the one on the throne, i.e., the Father, and the Lamb, I. Yeah. i.e., Jesus. And so that that right. verse was very strong. Once I understood uh, what it was talking about, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that.
1: Yeah, I, I, that word for worship. I think we need to deal um, with that because uh, in verse fourteen. So if you pull right. up verse fourteen, I'm actually going to pull that up real yeah. quick. If you yeah. look at that word for worship, because uh, and because and and because that addresses the, the the topic of well, there's different type of worship like. You know, like David. You know, he received some honor or something like. Right, you know, right, you, right. I hear that like he was a lord or something. And so, uh, I that that's problematic for a number of reasons because in that same book of Revelation, um, that same book of Revelation, the the angel twice says, "Do not worship me. Worship God alone." Right. Right. And, and and the thing is that word there um, that word um, for worship because I'm pulling it up here yeah uh,
0: presscan pros, uh, yeah
1: right proskineo proskineo is the Greek word is the highest form of worship that's the highest form of worship right right and when mm-hmm. the angels twice in the book of Revelation singular <laughs> The book of Revelation says, uh, "Do not proskuneo me," right? Mm-hmm. And yet you have uh, the one seated on throne and the Lamb both receiving proskuneo, right, from creatures. So that 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 emphasizes your point that uh, you have you the angels know that hey, a, a creatures cannot receive worship. Yet the Lamb who is Christ receives worship, right. and the Father receives worship. Yeah and, right? yeah,
0: and Yeah, yeah, and 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 a point I was making too, or emphasizing. Maybe I'll say it more yeah. explicitly. Let's say you wanted to make some argument <laughs> that the word worship here means some lower form than the highest form. Let's 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 address the presupposition there. Okay, the issue is it's done with the Father. So are is are, is someone seriously suggesting that the Father is receiving lesser form of worship along with the Son, right? Hopefully that's not the case because (laughs) that were a lesser form of worship would not be acceptable to the almighty, you know?
1: Yeah. Let me make a comment. It may sound a little flippant, but I it needs to be said. Okay, I believe one of the presuppositions I have about the text of scripture is that the apostles knew how to express themselves. So if the uh, John the Revelator wanted to make a distinction about different worships, Types of worship being uh, described there in verse fourteen, he was well within his means to understand and to know how to express that, and you don't see that here in the text at all. You see the highest form of worship given to the Lamb and to the One seated on the throne. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I just okay. th-
0: yeah, I just thought that'd be good to bring out. If anything yeah, else, definitely, yeah, definitely.
1: yeah. Another text I want to bring up is. Um, One that Jesus uses, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament a little bit, but actually I'm not going to go to the Old Testament. I'm actually going to go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. So if everybody's been tracking along, I hope you've been following. We've already established that according to the text we've looked at, that Jesus Christ is of the same, he has of the same nature, the sons of the same nature qualitatively as the father. We've already established that from various texts. We already established that the the son was with the father before creation. We've already established that from various texts. We already established that the son saves just like the father can save. We've already established that from various texts. You see what I'm doing here? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the hundreds of evidence here from the text. All right. What I also want to do is keep pressing the issue here for those who are still unconvinced i At this point, I think I would be convinced, but guess what we can keep going to show that there's there's still more scripture, just like even at the very end of the story revelation five like who you only worship God and God alone the very think about this when the when the ten commandments were given in Exodus chapter twenty we we ha, we are established that only to only worship God and God alone, right, and to worship any anything else other than God is idolatry, right, Absolutely. and yet you have both the one seat on the throne and the lamb receiving worship. That's interesting, isn't it? Yep. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 22. And I'm going to look at Jesus's question. I want in in reference to Psalm 110. Okay. This is going to be interesting. So towards the end of Matthew 22, uh, there's a question. So you have, um, you have, um, let me pick up here see verse 41 and following okay Matthew 22 beginning at verse 41 and now while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them a question saying what do you think about the Christ right here's the question what do you think about Messiah right whose son is he and they said to him the son of David and guess what That is true. That's not a false statement. But that's not all he is. And you're going to see Jesus press on. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh said to Adonai, right? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if David, verse 45, calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You're talking about closing the mouths of the obstreperous with that question. You, if you were trekking along, what they what they affirmed is the, the human nature of the Messiah. And we all agree with that, that Jesus was, truly it is truly man right uh but that's not all he is right that jesus is also truly god and when when jesus poses the question from psalm 110 it it forces them to deal with the quandary here by the question that was asked how is it that david calls him lord if he's only his son right how does David say that? Remember, this was David writing Psalm 110. So they didn't want to. They didn't want to go there. But we know what. If we know, we know where this is going because if we know, Adonai is often used to refer to God as well, right? So, and I know there are some Unitarians that like to play around with Psalm 110. But if they play around with Psalm 110, their mouths will also be closed like those Pharisees who left Jesus and didn't ask him any more questions because it was pretty obvious that Jesus was saying that, that the Messiah was more than just merely a man from this text. Right. Very interesting, isn't it? Okay. We've, we said a whole lot about the son. We can, we can delve into the Holy spirit. Because I can I can maybe there are a few people that are like, well, what what about the Holy Spirit? So there's a few texts we can go to about the Holy Spirit that is worth considering. Remember what I'm addressing. Why, why am I looking at these texts? Why are we spending time doing this? Because remember what I said before from my introduction, that this all makes sense. That that the definition of Trinity I gave is that within one being that is God, there exist eternally three co equal and co-eternal persons. Namely, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, demonstrating that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal is foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity. You follow that? So that's why I gave that definition earlier, so it's important for us to look at texts that affirm that the Holy Spirit is also God. The Holy Spirit is not and in personal force from the get from the father as some may affirm but the holy spirit is indeed god so i'm going to start back in genesis genesis chapter 1 so we is what's interesting right at the beginning look what it says, look what it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was, was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. So you have the presence of the Spirit of God even in the beginning. You know, even in the beginning here, you have the presence of God. So there's a distinction made between the Spirit and God here in this pericope, in this section of Scripture. Okay? So I'll go on. So I can even go to Psalm 33, 6. the Psalm 33. I'm looking at just Old Testament passages right now. Psalm 33, 6 we does just Psalm 33, 6 Say, okay? Psalm 33, 6 says, And by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So remember, creation is the act of God, right? Isn't, isn't God alone the creator, right? Isn't God alone the one, Yahweh alone, the one who creates all things? Yet, we see that by the breath of his mouth are, are all the hosts, right, made. So we have creation, the the actual work of creation here, the execution of creation being attributed to the spirit as well here, okay? Uh, we even have the spirit being connected with salvation in uh, the doctrine of uh, regeneration. You can go to John chapter uh, three, round verse five. Now look, look at this, showing the prerogative of divine prerogative of the spirit so if you go to John 3, and let's look here, it says, uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I believe that the reference here to water and spirit is uh, a reference here to Ezekiel chapter 36. Um we can discuss that later uh, if need be, but I believe that's a, 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 an allusion to that uh, text of scripture where the reference of water and the spirit is being referenced there as well. That is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows, Talking. this is talking about now, the, the action of the spirit, right? He's he's making this uh, a comparison between what the spirit does with the wind, right? So the spirit, the wind blows where it wishes. Well, think about that. You know, if uh, impersonal things can't do anything. They have no prerogatives. They have no will or desire, right, at all. Uh, per, only persons wish to do things, right? So, uh, and... You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we have that text there that shows the Spirit. Another good text is to look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is a great text because uh, this shows the Holy Spirit, about the Holy Spirit being God. I mean, this is actually an explicit text here in Acts chapter 5. So let's go to Acts 5. Remember, I said that the doctrine. I want to make sure everybody hears what I said. The doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. I want to keep making that point here. Okay, and, and I'm going to pick up at verse one. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and his wife knowledge, with his nice wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. Some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, "Why has Satan filled your heart with uh, your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And while it remained unsold, uh, did it not remain? uh, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Okay." Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? God. So it connects the Holy Spirit to being God. I hope you follow what's going on here. Because back in verse 3, it says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then verse 4, he says you've lied to God, right? So that's a great text to show that the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the being God. Absolutely, okay. so that's that's really clear there i mean so people will say well you know it's it's god using his the power using some imp- a personal force or something like that no uh you can't lie to impersonal things you can right. only lie to persons let, right
0: let me, let me uh let me give like a overarching heavy yeah. scripture throwing scripture at people to show other things you can't do to inanimate yes. objects um like I said, this is gonna be real fast, but you already brought up yeah. you can't lie to just the spirit, right? Or you know yeah. Acts five three. The spirit yeah. the spirit is said to be sinned against, Isaiah sixty three ten. We're called right. to obey the spirit, Acts ten, nineteen through twenty one. We're actually even told mm-hmm. to honor the spirit, Psalm fifty one eleven um right. the spirit empowers God's people Zechariah 4 6 he guides them Romans 814 he comforts them John 1426 he convicts them John 16 8 he teaches them John 1613 and he restrains sin Isaiah 59 19 and he gives commands Isaiah 8 acts 8 29 and there's so much more we could we could delve into yeah. it's 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 amazing yeah. but all those verses yeah. will just be, you know, kind of dismissed as oh well, that's just talking about you know the the spirit being of of God, so that's really God the Father. Just it's it really just or it's some some kind of like analogy or you know what mm-hmm. they'll dismiss the personality of the spirit and all those texts. You know where this the, I believe the Bible makes it very clear uh, because it, it it would be improper to say you lied to my to my conscience or you know some some something that is not. A, have ontological existence. You, you know what I mean. Like my 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 right. spirit. My spirit. No, you lie to me. A person. You know, uh, yeah. that is this be with the spirit yeah. as well.
1: It is the Holy Spirit that that gives the the, the gifts according to its prerogative, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: First Corinthians chapter twelve. We can go keep going on and on about that. Yeah. I think the case we, is the Holy Spirit yeah. is a person. And there are many verses just like Acts five and others that show demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit, as I already demonstrated in Psalms uh, thirty three, we can keep on looking at other passages. How how, is how about how about creation, is God can do?
0: Yeah. How about this? You know, we've been we've been going for a while. How about a few questions? If you're up for that? We can, uh, yeah,
1: let's, yeah, let's transition to questions.
0: Yeah, because I, I think we have exhausted many of the people. And, 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 and <laughs> here's the thing, uh, brother Rick, and, and I know you agree with, we, we have barely even scratched the surface. <laughs> yes. We, we, yeah, have, we have, we, you know, for, for those who say, well, uh, yeah. man, this is too in depth, we, we have, I feel like, and I know you feel the yeah. same way, that we barely even gotten to the meat. Uh, yeah, or,
1: see, the point here. <laughs> here brother chris is that there are so many verses that shout out the fact that this is a biblical doctrine that we can keep going and going and going it's not like it's a this is not a hidden doctrine this is not some obscure doctrine that you have to be some type of you know special theologian somewhere and oh you know unless you have certain certain uh you know theological knowledge you just can't uh ascertain this doctrine no the fact that there are so many verses that speak to all the foundations that we've I've laid out in my definition is the reason why this is a biblical doctrine. It's not Absolutely. some obscure thing. It's not something hidden somewhere under a rock buried somewhere it is it's shouting from the scripture is essential.
0: Right. All right. So, yeah. so here's our first question. I know this brother, he messaged me and he wanted me to explain this uh, or us to explain, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a crack at it. And he says, please explain the water analogy. Uh, and what he's talking about is, why, why is that improper to use in, in reference to the Trinity? Yeah.
1: yeah, so the water analogy is often heard where, you know, the God is uh, ice. describing the, yeah, he's ice. So ice is referring, again, referring to the Father, right? He's he's ice, liquid referring to the sun, and then vape, water vapor referring to the spirit, Right. So why is this? And every I'm going to say this, because if somebody else comes with another analogy, I'm just going to jump and I'm just going to knock it out now. First and foremost, we are talking about an uncreated being. That's 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 what any analogy that we come up with will always fail and will and will always lead us to some type of error. For, so, what's the error here? The error that we have here is the error, I would believe, of modalism, is here because you basically have water changing states.
0: Right. Moments. Right. Yeah.
1: So, which is the error of modalism where you have the idea of one God that changes uh, roles, right? So, one time it's the Father, then the Father in creation, He's the Son in redemption and the holy spirit and and sanctification right that's that's the formula you normally see but the problem is is that it doesn't make it doesn't make a clear distinction the fact that there are distinct persons right so there are two there there's two things there's the, the first thing well the first thing i want to mention is that every analogy falls on its face just Everyone, like,
0: just like the sun egg analogy, analogy.
1: another one. <laughs> the egg analogy yes. like the sun analogy <laughs> is like Another example of, uh, and actually, you know what's so funny? The sun analogy is what Sibelius, who was the proponent of modalism, that's the one he went to. And I even see people who affirm Trinitarianism try to use the sun analogy where you actually have uh, the sun is the father and then the sun generates light. That's the sun. You know, he's the light of the world. And then the heat is the spirit. Right. But is let me ask you a question. I mean, even like with the sun analogy. It, are the photons the same thing <laughs> as the hydrogen gas that are heat, heat, that's exploding? No, those are the, the the photons are a product of hydrogen gas. They're right. not the same thing. There are so in essence, you have subordinationism, right? Mm-hmm. Which is uh, or some type of mode switching, right? Because you have one thing becoming something else. Remember, the doctrine of the Trinity states that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of, of are of the same essence. So, the all the point is every single, and I, and I even hear people saying, "Well, you can use husband and wife like they're they're one. You know, the flesh becomes one." And well, didn't uh, Eve come out of Adam? You know, so it's kind of like these these analogies all fall apart. And I think people mean well. But what we're ultimately dealing with, and this is principally important, you're taking you're taking a concept, you're taking a being that's uncreated. And anytime you apply something in the creative order, you will always fall short. Right. The doctrine of the Trinity is not about how do we perfectly understand God? Because we don't. The doctrine of the Trinity is what has God revealed to us and with our finite minds, how we have apprehended what he has revealed according to the word the scriptures. Absolutely. And and that revelation came about, I want to say it again, through the incarnation of the Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit.
0: We've addressed something similar to this, but I'll ask it again okay. just for those who are new here, who haven't heard our answer prior, but Robert Baker asked a question. Godhead is in the word of God, right? Why not just use what's in the scriptures? What say ye, brother? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so we covered that already. And if everybody uses scriptures, that'd be great. But what history has demonstrated is that people twist the scriptures. Right. (laughs) People, the fact, I don't know if you heard this earlier, the one who asked the question, is that the reason why we need definitions because the definition separates truth from error. Uh, The definitions point to the, the biblical doctrine of who God is as revealed in scripture versus the counterfeits. That's what it does for us um and all you have to do is look throughout church history people the same the heretics had the scriptures too the heretics went to the scriptures and they said no god is like this arius had the scriptures and he said no no jesus is was a a created being he's a he's a lesser god he had the same scriptures that athanasius had right but he came to different conclusions athanasius was right he was biblical arius was unbiblical so absolutely. definitions matter because definitions help help us when people come to the text and say, Well, I'm just I'm just I'm just reading what the Bible says. You hear that all the time. But are you properly handling the text? Right. And what we see throughout scripture, and when we see throughout history, history is our friends, I know a lot of times people have an aversion to church history, but we need more church history because oh, what is happening today are the old heresies of the past, maybe packaged a little differently, but like oneness doctrine and all this stuff. This is stuff that's that's, that's happened centuries ago. This is there's nothing new here, and uh, what's happened is people have fought the fight to to clarify. That is, we start with orthodoxy, but then people start twisting the truth, and then we're we're we a need to clarify and to define terms so that we can uh, militate against false teaching, right, and heresies. So that's the reason why we do that. Right. That's right. the reason why we define the term. Right. That is all of these verses. Right. Look at all the verses that we covered. Well, all the concepts that we look through from Old Testament to New Testament. Well, all the Trinity does is it basically affirms that we believe all of what the Bible says about the revelation of God. That's all that we're saying when we say that.
0: Right. Absolutely. Uh, let me see if I can find this question. Where did it go? Uh all right. Our good friend Renzo. Uh he wants to point to first Chronicles twenty nine twenty, so I'll give you time to go there, but Renzo is my uh Unitarian uh uh friend, I guess. <laughs> he says, How would a Trinitarian read first chronicles twenty nine twenty, where Yahweh and the king shared Proscanaon? Right. We, we talked about that being uh, worship. Uh, a single verb form of worship applied to two subjects. He says Unitarianism has a coherent explanation. And I guess the assumption is Trinitarians don't.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to read the text. It says, then David said to all the assembly, bless be the Lord, your God and all the assembly. blessed the Lord. Bless Yahweh, the Lord of their fathers and bowed their heads and paid homage Paid homage to the Lord and to the King. All right. So, how would a Trinitarian answer that question? Well, I mean, just like I brought up before, I think we 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 looked at this. Is that uh, what what did the King? What was the? Let, let me back up and say, what was the King of Israel to the people? I mean, let me start with that. Well, the King, the the if you look through the text, what were prophets, priests, and kings? Prophet, priests, and kings throughout uh, the text of Scripture, Old Testament, were mediators. So a king operated in the role of uh, representing righteousness and justice from God to the people, right? And so I I see no no, no contradiction here because uh, the goal of a king was to always point people to the true God by demonstrating righteousness and justice before the people as the mediator, right? And so... Remember what I also said, the doctrine of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. So I don't have to reconcile and say, well, let me fit the doctrine of the Trinity in First Chronicles, chapter 29, uh, verse 20. All I have to do is say, what does all of Scripture reveal about God? Does he reveal more about himself as we read? The answer to the question is yes. Right. And. The thing is this still doesn't militate against what we see in Revelation chapter 5 because we already have scripture in Revelation chapter in Revelation where the angel says twice proskudesko this so the, the question is is the and I haven't looked maybe Renzo can tell me is in the Septuagint what Greek word is used here in verse 20 is it proskuneo that's my question back to you. I don't know. I haven't looked at it, but I don't think so. So that that's my answer to the question. You still there? Hello? Oh,
0: sorry, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me now? Sorry, yeah. love that I had me muted. Yeah. Uh, another thing to consider is that Revelation 5 is in heaven uh the the yes. angels are participating in the whole matter of fact the whole world yes, right. is participating so so yeah. even then the, the the i would argue it's a, a greater uh form of worship and so um yeah. something else to consider as well uh mm-hmm. I, m- most people uh let me see uh yeah okay here we go i'll ask this question the orthodox more says is there a single prophet or apostle and i'm assuming single apostle in the bible that teaches the doctrine of the trinity in the way you understand it Uh, oh let me say this yeah let let me before before i allow you answer i'll let you answer it i'll i'll kind of attack the presupposition behind the question is yeah we don't get a single we don't get our single uh doctrine or concept from from one prophet or one apostle Let me let me just say that we get it from the whole or totality of Scripture, right? Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura, right? I've seen I've seen some comments in the chats. Well, we just need to follow our doctrine from the book of Acts only. Well, God didn't only reveal the book of Acts, right? We have now this may make some people mad, but oh, well, we have 66 books in the canon, not one, not one verse. Right. We got to look at all the scripture. And so I just want to say I think that's important. I'll let you respond to it. To it again, the question is: Is there a single yeah, prophet?
1: To echo your whole thing. Is that okay. we, we we don't do this thing where you you go to one verse or one person. What we're showing is the not only are we showing that you have to consider all of what Scripture teaches, is that we're we're showing consistent revelation across different authors of Scripture. Correct. Is that I'm not I'm not hanging my hat on Paul. I'm not hanging my hat on just on Peter. I'm not hanging my hat on, on Paul. I'm hanging my hat on all of what Scripture teaches. Yeah. And so that's that we, in fact, every doctrine work that saw every doctrine requires that we look at all of what scripture teaches on the doctrine. In fact, um, one of the rules of proper, proper hymn, the scripture is that you go to the text where the doctrine is being taught. So remember, what were my foundations? My foundations were there's one God. Did I go to scripture that affirmed that there's one God? Yes, I did. Uh, the, the found a foundation too was that there what that there are three persons right um there are co equal and co-eternal right did I go to scriptures and k jumped in with the Holy Spirit towards the end did we go to scriptures uh, about that yeah and then did we go to scriptures that affirm the the deity that they were all God that all three persons were God right? Yes, we went to scriptures. That's that's how you attack this situation is that it's not one scripture or one author. It's all of what scripture says. Any doctrine worth its grain of salt is worth looking at all of what scripture says. Now, that's I great. can hear someone saying, well, you know, what about the Old Testament? Yes, it affirms. That's why I started there. We, we want to start with the Old Testament because that's the revelation of God. But as I also demonstrated from the text of scripture, is that the bible also presents the idea of progressive revelation that god reveals more of himself over time not god changing not god stop being who he is it's the same god the same god that revealed himself to moses is the same god that revealed himself to the to the to the 12 right to the to to the apostles and to the to the church so that that that's not a different god it's we have more revelation in fact What I would what I would challenge those who still have a problem with this is look at the Greek word mysterion. Look at how that's used throughout the New Testament in reference to Revelation. And I think that would be extremely helpful.
0: Yes. Uh, A part two to the question. (laughs) Uh, Theophilus (laughs) Josiah. So the apostles preaching in the book of Acts isn't enough to understand what is fundamental? So well,
1: here's how I would answer that question. Fundamental to what? So <clears throat> for the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, here's the thing you have, uh, you do have, uh, scriptures. And like I said, we looked at various scriptures, even acts. So I, I don't see why, uh, that's being brought up. What I'm saying is that we don't, we don't chop the Bible up. That's the point I make it. And I think Dub makes that we don't, chop the scripture everything that god has revealed about himself we receive that and then we we respond accordingly right uh just for example just like the doctrine of the incarnation the doctrine of the incarnation is not just uh presented in one place it's in multiple places throughout the text of scripture it's prophesied even in the old testament scriptures and comes to fulfillment in the new testament scriptures do we just look at the prophets and not look at the, the fulfillment of 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 the Messiah? No, we look at both. We look at all of what scripture says. That's what we do as Bereans.
0: Right. Yeah, I I, I just I just for the life of me don't understand why God revealed yeah. himself in all these texts, right? All, and we yeah. only want to limit to one. It, it would be like me yeah. saying, if you can't fight it in the Psalms, then I don't want it. Like, why? Like, yeah. it's, it's all scripture, right? And so I, yeah. I think that really kind of shows where some people kind of are coming from, but yeah, uh, be great. BME says, how long did it take you guys to find out about the Trinity?
1: So I, it's a valid question because uh, I point to another reason uh, that we need to talk about this. And And I alluded to this at the very beginning of this live stream. That is the, the Trinity is the foundation of the Christian faith. Now, when people come to faith, Do they can they you know do many people are able to articulate all the details and know where all the verses are? No. But the very foundations of the gospel and the redemptive work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Trinitarian nature. So, for example, everyone knows John three sixteen, right? I mean, most people know John three sixteen, right? What is that a fair assumption? You've heard that at least one time in your life. Correct. And what do you have in John three sixteen? You have the you have the giving of the, of the of the son by the father. He 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 expresses his love in a specific way by the giving of his son, right? So the idea of a father and the son or God and the son there um is 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 a Trinitarian concept. Somebody may not have all of the dots and all the the, the T's cross but it's clearly being presented in the redemptive work of humanity so the thing is we the, we all come to christ under the rudiments and the foundations of a triune and a trinitarian gospel and as we grow in our walk in our knowledge of the lord we learn more and that's why it's so shocking to hear people say well only read this text or only read this bible book or only read from this prophet or only read from this author when as we're growing in the lord we're true mature, and grow in all of what God has revealed about himself, and we learn more. Remember how I started the whole discussion is that I love God, and I love him more the more I know about him, and the more I know about the God who is triune, and his work of redemption, and how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all play a role and still play a role in in my redemption, in my salvation, and how the Son intercedes for me right now, and how the the spirit, the spirit sanctifies and is my guarantor and how the father who acts as one whose promises, whose decree and promises are irrevocable, how they all play a role in salvation. That gives me confidence and assurance and consolation. But that that, that can't happen with me being ignorant of the scriptures. Right. That's why, you know, the emphasis that Jesus even said in John 17 about you, being sanctified by the truth, our sanctification and our growth and our love for the Lord is never, is never divorced from the text of scripture and all of what God has revealed about himself.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Uh, yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. it for the most part. We're, we're, we're around two hours. So let's, uh, let's, let's, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys this, I'm going to put it in the chat, but if you're not subscribed to Rick Caldwell's channel, please do. Uh the brother makes good contact, good content. Um we've we've known each other for man. I, I think I was looking at that video today. It was three years ago. I was like, wow, time flies. Uh where we were
1: Yeah, time flies, brother.
0: <laughs> and so I, I'm I'm blessed to to know him. Um, and then these are just not puffing him up, but uh man, he's he's a great expositor of the word. Uh, someone that you will learn a lot from. If you enjoy this channel, you will definitely enjoy Rick Caldwell's channel. So make sure you subscribe to his channel. Matt, brother, any final words?
1: I think the key takeaway here is what I said earlier. I want to read this earlier in case people, because I'm hearing some really troubling comments. And right. I just want to encourage all those who may feel like, well, I, I feel this is the way I feel about it. Well, I want, to, I want to bring you back to this idea that the height of our worship, right? People talk about worship and what does it mean to worship the true God? The height of our worship will never exceed the depth of our theology. That means we, we have to get into the text and that means that we can't be selective. Well, I'm only going to read this text and, and not read this other text or this text has more weight than another text. Uh, we can't play that kind of game. It's all the revealed word of God. And so as we look at all of what God has revealed about Himself. We bask in 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 the glory, we bask in this reality of what God has accomplished through through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how they all are play a role in redemption. And and, and we and, and it's amazing. When you when you have that kind of appreciation, uh, I can say without a doubt, I love the Trinity. I mean, I really do. I love it because that's the God that that is revealed in the text of scripture. Amen. I would challenge you, if you hold to this idea, secondly, that you start with the Old Testament and, and there, there can be nothing new um, revealed, and, and new in the sense that not that God changes, and I keep emphasizing this, that God is a God who reveals more of himself, in the same sense that God revealed more of who he was to, to Moses. Moses desired to see the glory of God, and... Though God said you would die if you saw my face, I'm going to put you in a cleft of rock and I will pass beside you and you will still be able to know things about me. And we saw in in Exodus the revelation of the attributes of God. And what is so amazing, all all of this protesting, we we have the one who tabernacled among us, right? Do you see the trajectory of scripture you know, looking at what the promise was to the children of Israel about the God that would tabernacle or be among his people and in the building of the temple and the tabernacle. And the, and you see Jesus Christ himself who tabernacled among us. That That's amazing. And and, and it reminds me of what, uh, in closing, what Philip said. He says, well, why you know, uh, t- don't keep us in suspense. Are you the, you know, show us the father. And what did Jesus say? What did the Messiah say? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It is Christ in Christ alone who reveals the Father, right? He's not the Father, as some people mistakenly come to conclusion, but he reveals who the Father is in every way. And so that's amazing. I, I hope everyone was edified and blessed by this, this discussion this evening.
0: Absolutely. I, I know that I was... Um just hearing you go over some of the verses as even as, as I was reading I was I was man I was just the 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 high christology right the the exaltedness yes. of, of 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 God himself right man that that should occur to every christian we yes. we're, we're already hearing um <laughs> you know uh people saying we need a part 2 <laughs> and uh, that's encouraging that people want to hear more of his word and so with that said guys we're going to end it here um <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was blessed by it. Make sure you uh, subscribe to Rick Caldwell's channel. Uh, make sure you like this video, subscribe to this channel, and hit the notification bell, guys. Till the next time, grace and peace.